Phil Harding talking about the 1980s PWL and Stock Aiken Waterman. And so far, I've taken you through 84 to 87. And as we hit 1988, a major change, a new star arrives. I'm talking about Kylie Minogue. She arrived in 87. She took a week out from filming her Neighbours show that she was on. None of us working at the studio knew anything about Neighbours. Our work schedule would be 10 a.m. through to 10 p.m. So we certainly didn't have time to watch TV when Neighbours was on at 5 p.m. And she'd taken a week out to come over and record with Stock Aiken Waterman. The best way I can describe it is that by that time we were so busy three studios running, a whiteboard up in the main studio with any number of projects on. So the week Kylie arrived, there was probably a list of Sam Fox up there, Banana Armour, Rick, etc, etc. And Pete Waterman really was the captain of the ship. There'd be a morning meeting, Pete would decide or relay to Mike and Matt what was going on, what the priorities were, and throughout a day, sometimes depending on who was coming in, what was on the tape machine and what was being worked on could be three or more different projects in a day. So for some reason, Pete Waterman, possibly thinking he's already got the boys under too much pressure, failed to let them know that Kylie was arriving to record with them. They hadn't got anything prepared at the start of the week and ready for her. We'd grown from a staff of, let's say, five or six people in 1985. Here we are in 1987, towards the end. We had quite a large amount of staff in the building by that time. The publishing company, a lot of admin people, as well as all of the creatives. And we would gather quite regularly in the reception area to celebrate somebody's birthday or to celebrate another hit record and it was on one of those occasions during that week when Kylie was there that I first met her we were drinking champagne and eating cake and she was sitting in the corner of the room and no one was talking to her I didn't know who she was so I went over and said hi told her who I was and she introduced herself and said that she was here to make a record with Mike and Matt and I wished her well Come the Friday of that week, and there are various versions of this story, but certainly what I've been told is that Peter disappeared for the weekend, as he often did on a Friday, because he still lived up in Warrington, up north. And the managing director, David Howes, had had Kylie and her manager doing all of the touristy things around London for the best part of the week and saying each day, oh, I'm sure they're going to get you in the studio, um, you know, it'll be tomorrow. Go off to the Tower of London and, you know, one of our drivers will take them around. So come Friday morning, both Kylie and her manager were getting quite stressed and concerned that she was getting on a plane in the afternoon and still nothing had been recorded. So there was an unwritten rule that David Howes was basically not allowed into the studio, into the control rooms for various reasons. But he had to go in, he had to point out to Mike and Matt that today had to be the day a deal had been struck and I wasn't in the room. I'm told that quite a few people came in and talked about it. They tried to get hold of Pete on the phone and we had a fantastic club promoter called Pit Stop who was our own promoter by that time, going out to the clubs. And a conversation, something along the lines of, well, we've got nothing written for her and maybe we could pull something off the shelf. And it's renowned that Pitstop said, well, she should be so lucky to have something you've got on the shelf, guys. At which point, <laughs> another light bulb for Mike Stock looked at Matt Aitken. Ah, oh, that's an idea. And they set about writing the song there and then. Obviously, the song hadn't been written. So Kylie came into the studio and section by section, as they were writing it, they'd get Kylie in to record it. So let's record a verse, let's record some chorus, then the next verse, etc. And I'm told that by the time Kylie left to get her plane at the end of the day, she had no idea or concept of how the song actually sounded. 
So here it is, Kylie Minogue, I Should Be So Lucky. January 88, that hit number one in the UK. It took off around Europe, didn't really do well in America. A couple of Kylie records did after that. But what a fantastic start to her career. But it really was, I often say to people, and it's in my book, PWL from the Factory Floor, that it was the end of a creative period for us coming out of 87 because Kylie became so big and Pete Waterman formed his own record label, PWL Records, saying that no one was prepared to sign Kylie, which sounds crazy, but the other labels weren't interested. And suddenly, what he actually named as PWL Empire at the start of the whole process 
This was the last brick, as it were, in the building of the empire by rather than working for outside record labels, suddenly you had your own label. So you've got your own production team, your own songwriting team, your own publishing, your own label. And it really was a fantastic ride from here on. But in my humble view, creatively, we went a little bit downhill and a bit too pop. But aside from that, myself and Ian Kerno, uh, sometimes called the SAWB team, we had our own studio set up further down in the building. And by this point in 88, we'd done a couple of remixes for the Pet Shop Boys, formed quite a good relationship with their manager, Tom Watkins. And Tom phoned one day and said, we're looking at making a record with Eighth Wonder and Patsy Kensett. And it's a song that the Pet Shop Boys had written and they'd like to come over to PWL and co-produce it with yourself and Ian. So we'd just come out of another remix with them and literally on the same week in they came to make this record. Very proud of this one. I'm Not Scared by Eighth Wonder.
Kenzie, as we know, went on to be a very well-known actress and she's still around on the scene, as it were, but no longer making records. But that was good fun, making that with her and the Pet Shop Boys. So Ian and I were on a fantastic run of lots of remixes and club remixes at this point, and Pete Waterman managed to negotiate a couple of major remixes, one of which I'm going to play you next, where the record companies were willing to send the original multi-tracks to us because Pete had earned their trust. So that happened with some of the tracks from the Grease movie, and we did the Grease Mega Mix, Olivia Newton-John and John Travolta. That was interesting hearing their multi-tracks. But even more exciting was that Pete did a deal with Tamla Motown and almost gave us the choice of what tracks would we like to remix in a current groove and mode. So this is the 88 remix from myself and Ian Kerno, Michael Jackson and the Jackson 5, I Want You Back.
you can hear the fun that we had on that. Having all of those vocals separated for us and to play with with our samplers, it was a great honour. But interestingly, the multi-track arrived, 16 individual tracks. Eight of those had all the music on, guitars, drums, etc., backing vocals. And at some point it must have been transferred from 8-track to 16-track because tracks 9 to 16 were all Michael. I had to recompile Michael's lead vocal from a choice of eight takes. So that was interesting. Anyway, at this point in time, back at PWL, Pete's trying to persuade, quite rightly, Rick Astley to come back in and do a second album with us. Contract was there, the deal was done. Everybody was waiting and quite desperate for his next album and his next material. There'd been four singles off the first album. And he came into the studio to record a song called Nothing Can Divide Us, which they had written for Rick. And there was a buzz around the building when big stars came back in, and although we all knew Rick really well, there was always a buzz if Debbie Harry came in once. We did a whole album, Madonna Summer, which I'm playing track from later on. People were excited. There was a vibe in the building. Oh, Rick's back in, he's starting album two. And somewhere around five o'clock, I had gone out to reception, and Rick was coming down the stairs at pace, didn't look happy, didn't really communicate, and stormed out the building. To which, lots of raised eyebrows, lots of worried people, and the long and the short of it is that he didn't like the song. As we all know now, it got passed on to Jason Donovan. But it was originally written for Rick. He felt it was too poppy, he felt the key was too high, and basically said to Pete Waterman, look, I'm writing my own songs now, I want to do my own thing, put me in a studio with someone else to give that a go. So Pete Waterman said to myself and Ian Kernow, look, we really ideally want to keep Rick on board. Will you go down to the workroom studios in Elephant Castle that he had just purchased and co-produce with Rick a couple of his own songs? And the feeling was that we had quite a lot of freedom to do whatever we wanted, bring in extra musicians, make it less programmed, etc., etc. So that's what we did initially. So normally the basses would come from synthesizers and be programmed, but we brought a live bass player in, Felix Krish. We had Robert Away on guitar, who'd played with Wham and lots of soul bands. The Lewis sisters singing backing vocals. And Rick had written this song called She Wants to Dance With Me. And it came out slightly different to this. So I'm playing you a version that's not very often heard. And we call it the original R&B version with the live bass. Yeah. 